0: The Hub is a community, manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long War Hub Arts and Humanities, Humanities and Research
1: Institute.
2: The Hub is a space celebrating 10 years through the
0: community. This Created by Coral City.
2: The Hub is about impact, The Hub is for everyone.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Staff Postgraduate Seminar Series. I'm Janice, a PhD candidate in the School of English, and along with Maggie and Orla, one of the conveners of the seminar series. The series is a supportive space for postgraduate students, faculty, and guests to present and discuss their current research and works in progress. We would like to welcome you all to this evening's talk, the last in the series for this term. We'd also like to take a moment to thank all of our speakers so far and all who have attended the sessions. We'd also like to let you know that our call for papers for Hillary term is open And our first Hillary term event will take place on 2nd February, 2021. Keep an eye on our links for the upcoming schedule of speakers. Uh, We hope to see you all there. The links should be in the chat. Uh, Today we are delighted to have a presentation by Dr. Sorka Niflon, whose talk is entitled Too Bad We Can't Save Baby, Examining the Haunted House in 1980s America. But before we begin, a bit of housekeeping. This session is being recorded. The series is being hosted by Trinity Long Room Hub. If you are tweeting during the event, please tag at TLRHub at TCD English and at Seminars TCD2020 or use the hashtag tcdenglishspgs, English SPGS, all of which will be in the chat for you. Dr. Niflan's Twitter is Vampire Sorca. Sorka will speak for around 40 minutes, uh, um, 40, 45 minutes, and there will be time for questions after. If you have a question, please type it into the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen at any time during the talk. The chat function is disabled for this event. After the talk, I will relay as many questions as possible in the time allotted. If there are any technical issues during the seminar, we will attempt to remedy them as quickly as possible and ask for your patience and understanding. Without further ado, I would like to introduce our speaker tonight. Dr. Sorka Niflan is Senior Lecturer in Film Studies and American Studies at Manchester Metropolitan University. Her work is rooted in sociocultural, historical, and Marxist approach to film studies, cultural studies, popular and contemporary American literature, and popular cinema. She specializes in Gothic studies and horror cinema with research particularly focused on vampires and monster studies. Welcome, Dr. Sorka Niflan. Thank you,
2: Janice. Um, Just give me one second to share my screen with you. Okay, Okay, hopefully, you can all see that there. Um, And uh, if I could ask the uh, moderator just to turn off my camera, that would be great. Thank you. Okay, so um, I'm hoping you'll enjoy this pra- paper today. It is part of a work in progress, um, a new monograph I'm beginning to work on. And one of the things I was really interested in doing was uh, showing you not just some nice images or hard images as you'll see, but also um, some really great clips. So hopefully the um, clips will, will come across well for you at your end of, uh, of the seminar today. I want to thank everybody um, for inviting me. This is a wonderful return for me, a life spectral return to Trinity at long last. So uh, thank you very much for that. Okay, so in the surface reading of the long 1980s in popular culture, ghostly disturbances and returns were not the most prevalent form of disturbance in the American imaginary. Eclipsed by a more overt styles of maiming and killing with a plumb in the slasher and monster subgenres, ghosts and spectral, spectral disturbances were not were distinctly more muted, I think, in comparison. Haunted homes were a secondary source of disturbance, distanced by a seeming lack of direct consequence in the age of tangible markers of financial and cultural indices of success, including asset acquisition and desired upward mobility. Such manifestations in the house, apartment or hotel, when they did occur, were marginalized in box office returns in the age of materialism. Their links to the past deemed irrelevant, a period to be consigned to a past now forgotten, or ignored in the relentless desire to begin anew. When hauntings did become overtly bothersome, the necessary supernatural cleansing that often helmed, was often helmed by, outs, by outsourced experts, as businesses, startups, or organizations, according to Tom Shone, lone individuals who dealt with such undesirable intrusions, and often for a considerable financial fee. Especially when government and public infrastructures failed to act. This is, of course, a staple of 1980s ideology more generally, where government fails to act responsibly. So big government is bad and it is up to individuals fired from their university posts, as in Ghostbusters, disavowed from their units, as in the A-team, or spectrally returning from their declared deaths, as in Michael Knight of Knight Rider, who must secure the future as uh, as individuals or part of a small, powerful collective working on the margins of the law. Upon closer inspection, these eruptions of cultural traumas nonetheless steadfastly refused to remain buried under renewed and neoliberally promulgated rhetoric of the national myth of success. In this national rhetoric, these unwelcome eruptions warned uh, that it was necessary to evict, contain, or sanitize oneself against the wrongdoing such hauntings inevitably conjured up in its unfinished business. The erasure of these troublesome histories, then, that erupt in this Reagan revolution of confidence, namely the legacies of the 1960s and 70s counterculture, feminism and civil rights reigned supreme to establish a bold new economic frontier that relegated such eruptions as troublesome annoyances that demanded swift action. What? Uh, what becomes most apparent in the denial of such spectral intrusions, however, often results in great mass eruptions of violence and cultural destabilization on a national scale, and it's manifest here in Gothic homes, suburban horrors and small towns, and larger, larger concerns in terms of minorities and forgotten communities that bear all the scars in the brunt of the decades, culture wars. So in this exploration, the selected terrible places I'm looking at, and we'll look at a greater amount in in, in the book in due course these places and films essentially articulate these tensions in the diegetic use and navigation of economic and financial security, familial relations and psychological terror in what I term the long 1980s. For to haunt a property or to threaten one's outward marker of visible security is more distressing in the age of asset acquisition than the realm of spiritual anxiety or religious belief alone. So this long 1980s, just to clarify, is pretty much going from the um, end of New Hollywood uh, from you know, in the late 1970s through to the mid-1990s. So you're essentially looking at the ascension of horror from B-movie um, disregarded text to um, Hollywood culture and Hollywood gothic. The cost of one's property and the propriety of the community is prized above any number of social issues that blight the veneer of America's great economic resurgence, varying in expression during this long decade from hotels, such as The Shining, to Irish castles in high spirits, abandoned mansions, such as The Changeling and Ghost Story, exclusive apartments, as in Ghostbusters, model homes like Beetlejuice, or deteriorating project housing, as in in the people under the stairs and in Candyman, ghostly returns in the domestic space during the long 1980s warn of a past not fully repressed and forewarns of a precarious future built on deceit, class anxiety and repressed national trauma that remains evidently unfinished. It is the site of 1980s culture wars writ large onto the canvas of the domestic space as a psychic dwelling for national ghostly manifestations of guilt, trauma and the naked pursuit of affluence. So this paper, which of course is a work in progress as part of a thematic study on gothic and horror cinema in the long 1980s, will look to a few examples stemming from issues around ethnic and racial marginalisation, and openly welcome your feedback as my research is, is developing further in the area. Other aspects of the study will include examples of national trauma we experienced in weird and strange houses as seen in House or House 2, with its portals, dimensions and monsters conjured up from buried histories and National anxieties such as Vietnam Syndrome, all the way uh, alongside more familiar um, films to be re examined, including obviously the Poltergeist and Amityville series much of the writing of these 1980s texts and scholarship to date contextualizes them in terms of the upsurge or horror more generally during the decade but rarely do we find an articulation of economic costs and cultural anxieties in terms of access to housing, gender equality, community standards and homeland security in terms of policing norms and of course inclusivity um, as equally serious concerns in the domestic cinematic environment. So for now I'm going to treat you to the the wonderful
1: Eddie Murphy. I was watching Poltergeist last month. I got a question. Why don't white people just leave the house when there's a ghost in the house? Y'all stay in the house too fucking long. Get the fuck out of the house. Very simple. It's a ghost in the house. Get the fuck out. And not only did they stay in the motherfucking house and Poltergeist, they invited more white people over. Sitting around going, my daughter Carol Ann's on the television set. I would have been gone. If I had a daughter been down the precinct and said, look man, uh, I went home and my fucking daughter's in the TV set and shit, so I just fucking left. Uh, you can have all that shit, I ain't going to back, back to the motherfucking, uh, I just came down so when she ain't up at the school, you th- don't think I killed the bitch or nothing like that. But she is inside the TV set, you can have all that shit. Fuck it. Uh, Mr. Murphy, didn't you try to save your daughter? Yeah, I'm a man and shit, I tried to save, I turned the channel, the shit didn't work, I got the fuck out. Leave! The kid was only six years old in the movie, they couldn't have been too attached to her. Leave! In the Abnerville horror, a ghost told them to get out the house. White people stayed in there. Now that's a hit and a half for your ass. A ghost say, get the fuck out, I would just tip the fuck out the door. They walked and looked in the toilet bowl, there was blood in the toilet. They said so that's peculiar. I would have been in the house and said, oh baby this is beautiful we got a chandelier hanging up here kids outside playing it's a beautiful neighborhood out nowhere i really love them this is really nice get out too bad we can't stay baby <laughs> i was watching pol-
2: so as you can see from eddie murphy's uh explicitly written um, but nonetheless brilliant performance from delirious He foregrounds the spaces of horrors, cultural and social eruptions during the 1980s, obviously in terms of Amityville and Poltergeist from the 1983 stand-up show Delirious, and it deserves particular attention. It's obviously a very celebrated sketch, but it deserves its attention because it highlights so many nuanced, complex layers around the haunted house narrative. So the nuance of Murphy's sketch points to further unmentioned, but nonetheless palpable concerns around racist discourse in the 1980s. But racism... That actively discouraged African-American families to move to white neighborhoods not only belies the artificiality of welcoming suburban communities, but the ideals sold to all as readily available in the suburbs more generally. And it also points to the inherent collision of ideals concerning private property. Investment in property as a site of realized dreams, wealth, and asset acquisition is conditional on the surroundings and the fiscal value. The good neighbourhood, the good schools, the low crime rates are cited not only as barometers of safe and ideal environments, but also illustrate that precarious class fluidity underpins access to these ideals for those who cannot afford it on the open market and must contend with purchasing and staying in the haunted space. Such haunted and murder houses, because of murder houses as well, described as deals of the century or as steel as it is being sold under market value warns viewers up front that such properties demand recompense with Faustian bar- uh, as Faustian bargains or unpaid debts to be discovered and, of course, for reparation. The final line of Murphy's sketch delivers its most important unspoken element and perhaps the nastiest of the truths of 1980s and 1990s horror culture. These white affluent spaces often see diversity as a source of property devaluation and the dissolution of morals, and the dreaded spread of urban blight infiltrating their suburban exclusive neighborhoods. Soon enough, the neighbors are likely to chime in with the house's demands for Eddie to get out. Such, as, such is such the power of Murphy's observation that Jordan Peele revealed as an important element in his own Oscar winning screenplay for Get Out, a, t- a film, um, the film, a timely and horrifying reversal of the consumed and haunted black body rendered as a commodity for white subjugation and control in its in its affluent white suburb. Peel's film articulates that the spectral horrors of white media, the projection of white concerns and affluence, and the forced removal and exclusion of ethnic others in whiteopian suburbs are, of course, still at work via racist cops, fetishizing black culture, and, of course, stereotyping. And it is superbly documented for further research, if you wish, by Robin Means Coleman in her fantastic study on chocolate cities and vanilla suburbs in her book, Horror Noir. In his excellent analysis of the horror of the haunted house in 1980s cinema, Bob Fear identifies the paradoxical architecture of the haunted house film as one that either invites us in to power its malevolent intent certainly inspired by Shirley Jackson's 1959 masterpiece The Haunting of Hill House, or it overtly rejects its new occupants, driving them to madness, traumatic encounters or eventual self-annihilation as a means of permanent eviction. Amityville's George Lutz is, of course, wrong in his estimation that houses don't have memories. Rather, should the decor or the original features remain visible or unaltered in the house, or the histories of those past crimes only hurriedly or partially obscured with paint or the blocking of a seemingly trivial door, these, these cues affirm that the house will reveal its secret horrors and its, or indeed its unseen occupants, uh, and the extent, of course, of their terrible crimes in due course. Other houses uh, quickly reveal themselves as strange shrines, liminal doorways, or temporary sites of resurrection for antagonists caught between two worlds and determined to claim their vengeance. The return of Vietnam veteran Big Ben, for instance, in-house stands in for the guilt of forgetting those who did not return home from Southeast Asia, robbed of their futures by successive governments who in turn all failed to acknowledge wrongdoing. By the mid-1980s, this is around the time of House, of course, as well, representations of the Vietnam War on film broadly bifurcated into two competing worldviews that largely disavowed or rewrote its traumatic realities. The war as hell meditations, um, which consider what really happened there, think of Oliver Stone's platoon, for instance, or Reagan's desire to rewrite history in the hope of securing a late stage cultural victory, think Rambo First Blood Part Two, are redolent examples of these ongoing cultural tensions that Vietnam plays a significant backdrop to the weird comedic horrors in house further emphasizes the psychological scarring of the war than what it had for an entire generation who felt caught between life and undeath, who had never really left in some capacity of their trauma. And, uh, and of course those politically absent subjectivities necessitated then a spectral return in the form of guilt and national sin. The haunted house as a dwelling becomes a strange sh- shrine then, as you will see later with Barker or, or, indeed, or indeed Bernard Rose's uh, adaptations, um, to those who demand reparation or atonement for grievous crimes. Okay, so as you can see there, we have the Klopek house from uh, Joe Dante's 1999 film The Burbs, so as Bernice M. Murphy notes, many American Gothic texts that focus on domestic hauntings overwrite the European tradition of the Gothic castle with more familiar environs and include plots that hinge upon the assertion of land, quote, these homes, of course, stand on, ho- on stolen ground. Murphy's observation is correct here, of course, not only in identifying the trend upon which numerous haunted houses would continue to express their horrors of the past in marking out the diseased house, quote, as the symbol of all that is wrong or unjust about the past, but also furthers this legacy in more subtle ways in its continual return in numerous 1980s horror films. The variation in the 1980s, I argue, is not that the house is stolen directly from native people but other culturally and economically repressed minorities who bore the brunt of Reaganite politics and endured blatant exclusion during the decade's culture wars, particularly single parent families and black and economically vulnerable communities whose access to safe and secure public housing was actively curtailed. These examples vary from the hysterical reactionary discovery of intrusion into the suburban idyll in the burbs to the mirrored horrors of public and private rental apartments, uh, with nicer locations deliberately reassigned from public housing to isolate and eventually ghettoise the poorer black community in Candyman. While also returning to this notion of the stained land and the unspeakable murder house histories upon which these new ideals in the decade were to be built and rebuilt. As Stephen King examines in Dance Macave, quote, the horror film as economic nightmare, unquote, is prevalent and timely as a prevalent and timely reminder of the class disenfranchisement during the Carter cultural malaise at the end of the 1970s, with King's case in point being the, quote, dollars and cents, quote, examination of the Amityville Horror. For King, whether the events at Amityville are true or not is irrelevant. The horrors of the Lutz family's economic reality situate the film as a subject for study for its contemporaneous audience. Though its gothic horrors of fly infestations, demonic pigs and inexplicable seeping liquids are deemed banal by King in his critical evisceration, he nonetheless concedes its resonance is rooted uh, in the economic stagflation that rendered home ownership as financially punitive and beyond the reach of prospective buyers on modest incomes. As John S. Adams notes in his monograph Housing America in the 1980s, based on the 1980 US Census, he says, quote, the stable relationship between house prices and interest rates was shattered in the 1970s as mortgage interest rates moved to a level double those uh, of a decade earlier. Adams contextualises further that, uh, that increasingly serious bouts of high inflation beginning in the final years of the Vietnam War and aggravated by the OPEC oil price shocks starting in 1973 disrupted the small savers and the institutions that catered to them. As prices in general and house prices in particular began a steep rise, interest rates rose unevenly. So access to the financial means to purchase a home and to repay mortgage debt became increasingly unstable, rising to double-digit figures for the bank interest alone and thus infusing the haunted house as a barometer of class exclusion and resentment that continues to seek out new victims who aspire to dwell in homes and communities that simply do not want them there. The Reagan revolution and its equalization in the George H Bush presidency were both entirely unapologetic in their respective pursuits of stigmatizing those who failed to earn and to conform, let alone achieve, its social Darwinian vision of American success. So looking at these idyllic neighborhoods then, and this is uh, focusing on the burbs, in the Burbs a fantastic Tom Hanks film that I'm, I'm particularly fond of Ray Peterson played by Hanks his own takes his own vacation at home and it turns into a paranoid exploration into the occupancy of the house next door recently taken over by a new and initially unseen foreign neighbors refusing to allow these new neighbors to live in peace and treating their lack of integration with extreme suspicion, Ray is led by a gung-ho motley crew of uh, neighbors comprised of Vietnam veteran Mark Rumsfield and conspiracy-prone Art, you'll see him in the red shirt there, played by Rick Ducommon, who also live in this seemingly idyllic um, cul-de-sac, and they, uh, which is pretty much based on every kind of television series you would have ever seen from the 1950s and 60s. It's shot entirely on Colonial Street, which is on the back lot of Universal Studios. And you'll recognize it by the sheer volume of houses, essentially, that are reminiscent of famous television series. Uh, everything from the Munsters to um, Desperate Housewives, all the way through to e. Grandmans, E.T. Grandmans, it's etc. A, it's a classic American, middle American street. The Clopac House, however, formerly occupied by the Naps, uh, is an unsightly and unkept eyesore. Dilapidated and partly reminiscent of Norman Bates' home, of course, in Psycho, also on the back lot. Assumed to be a terrible place from the offset, with shots of the street keeping the unsightly home within view, the homestead becomes a means uh, of remaining distinctly apart and prohibits uninvited guests. The house itself literally seems to ward them off. Its porch is riddled with, with holes that double up as rigged traps. Burglar alarms, trip and, of course, an oddly powerful furnace are considered affirmations of the new family's malevolent intent by the suspicious neighbours. Nonetheless, the situation soon escalates from gossip to active spying with the paranoia reaching fever pitch when art suggests that they clearly must be part of a satanic cult. And the next clip I'm going to show you is a a really amazing one from the Burbs. It's very surrealist, but um, Ray is starting to think that art might be right, that they may very well be Satanists. So uh, enjoy. I'll come back to that in a minute then.
1: Carol.
2: Carol? Carol? to invite the
0: new neighbors over for a barbecue. Hey
1: hey hey. hey, 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 hey! Who the heck ordered the blood shake? <laughs> hey, Ray, it's not Skip, it's me, Art. I'm just pretending to be Skip. Hey, you didn't have to see an ice pick around here, did you? <laughs>
2: It's a
0: beautiful day in this neighbourhood, a beautiful day for a neighbour, would you be mine, could you be mine? It's a neighbourly day in this beauty, would a neighbourly day for a beauty, would you be mine, could you be mine?
2: Okay, so as you can see, the Klopek host is really getting on top of Ray. So the state of dilapidation of course of the house when we see it furthers these paranoid fantasies at every turn and especially because of the overt rejection and unapologetic difference this house stands in testament to as is, um, uh, against suburban cultural and aesthetic values That Satanists would openly declare their alternate lifestyle at such a time and in such an overt manner is, of course, the best part of this joke. And and in turn led to the studio approved, compromised ending of the film, which I'll get into. The true intent of um, Dana Olsen's screenplay and Joe Dante's film relies on mocking the paranoia and witch hunt trial by media that overtly, that overshadowed the mid to late years of the decade, especially when you look at the McMartin preschool trial, The investigations alone ran between 1983 and 87, and the trial itself ran from 87 to 1990, making it one of the longest trials in American history, whereby false testimonies, recovered memories and media frenzy all cast enough suspicion and guilt on those accused of child abuse and satanic practice that any such suggestion of an infernal presence was, of course, tantamount to guilt. The terror haunting the suburban space in the burbs initially posits that unruly others who refuse to share and conform in the curated-led fantasy norms, um, these curated-led fantasy norms, uh, disturb social order and thus are to be quietly tamed or violently cast out. While we do not see the Klopek family before rumour and suspicion introduces them, the film situates the interior architecture of their home as a times as a time capsule, a frozen state of aesthetic gloom uh, of the of its interiors does not express anything around contemporary taste, but st- rather it's as a still as, as still being. The home of its former occupants the naps so essentially by the fact that it's not been changed or we don't get any not acknowledgement of its change we see that they are literally moved into this old old house and kept the decor the naps whose name alone suggests that uh, from the offset of the film that they are forever sleeping um their house has actively been stolen by the clopax at the heart of this parasitic domestic intrusion then the house stands apart as an affirmed terrible place, once the crime of its current inhabitants is revealed and stands in testimony to their lack of belonging because they cannot keep up the facade. And of course, they they would not be able to afford that home. Same for the fact that they had to kill their way into the neighborhood. This version of the Gothic house then contains no ghostly specters, nor any practicing Satanists, rather old fashioned murder, which is awkwardly grafted on into the final scenes scenes of the film to affirm the Clopex family penchance, but it does confirm and satirise the haunted house iconography and its suburban incongruity, uh, whereby horror is rendered inescapable and, of course, uncomfortably close. The house excruciatingly stands apart in its environments as a sociocultural canvas under scrutiny, suburban belonging more generally is coming under active thinking at this time, uh, and it actively critiques the whiteness and uneasy and exclusionary agendas of suburban attainment. Now, the Klopex, who you might not have seen notice there, they are white themselves, but there's definitely a difference, uh, an ethnic difference that is um, recurringly referenced in several times in the, um, in the film. The nature of the film's uh, investment in property could not be clearer. In the opening scene, for example, Ray's barefoot crossing the territorial property boundary provokes an instant reaction. The wind rises to literally push him back to his own side of the territorial line, a stark reminder of the strict um, parameters of otherness that dominate the house's features. The inhabitant's evil doing, vividly imagined by the community, is written literally into the mise-en-scene surrounding the building, and the film itself drains colour. It starts off quite beautifully popping of colours, um, you know, that reminiscent of blue velvet, and it drains out this colour when we start to get close to the house. It shows that even good houses situated amongst good neighbourhoods can be vectors for the forces of darkness. Identified early in the film as distinctly foreign, where we hear the, co- the name Klopek, isn't that, is that a Slavic name? Their desire to partake in the suburban dream does not make them malleable to the social rules of conformity that tames the other representatives of 1980s society in this neighborhood. So we have the retiree Walter, who had the ax in his head in the dream sequence, the everyday man Ray, of course, the veteran Rumsfeld, who is, you know, constantly armed throughout the film and his, and his trophy wife and the local gossip art, the um, alongside the unsupervised rebellious teenager, Ricky played by um, Corey Feldman, all of whom have carved out their own place in the streets, politics. With Art in particular, the chief paranoid neighbour who insists that they almost investigate these new arrivals further and thus polices the borders of community standards and stands in for a lost collective memory in the town of Hinkley Hills, he repeatedly expands upon his paranoid fantasies of threat, such as murder and, satan- and satanic cult practices, to explain their unconventional behaviours, spying on the house and its occupants at every turn. What is perhaps most disturbing then to the suburban community is that the anxiety of of ethnic identity is seen as directly counter to the suburban ideal, with little or no recourse against those who refuse or fail to assimilate, so you don't control who your neighbours are, in essence. Joe Dante's film may have had its sharp edges removed by the studio executives at Universal, particularly because with the revised ending that reveals the Klopaks are in fact murderers. But the culture war critique and racism is provoked by their lack of assimilation and nonetheless remains visible at the margins. So it blames the clopex as well, which I think is quite, quite, quite un- unfortunate. Another omission, of course, in the film script is that Ray, rather than being staying at home on vacation, was actually fired from his job, refusing to face the horrors of unemployment and thus distracting himself with the street’s paranoia over his new neighbors and their potentially infernal persuasions. That Universal bolted on this need for foreigners to be murderers and that Ray’s employment status is cut from the film entirely. It erodes the film's distinct pointed dark humor and satirist edges particularly when um, that the economic precarity um, can strike at and destroy the myth of suburban security um, for anybody at any time. Pardon me. In the end, it is the Klopek house that dominates the film's comic disturbance to the suburban façade, with its sinister dilapidation, comical comical unkemptness and disturbing furnace. Note the overt nature, the dead nature of things that surround it, even the window lace that hangs. It's like a fabric cobweb, completing the abject state with its scorched yard, its lightning rod at its turret and distinctly dated antique interior. Early in the second act comes the origin tale of suburban bana- banality that functions as, um, as the films now blunted moral message, as retold by art, it is a story of a local jolly ice cream parlor owner that confirms the madden- maddening banality of suburbia, an ironic lesson that art does not fully connect with uh considering his own sort of strange madness throughout the film suburban difference agitates many of the occupants as an intrusion of the fantastic into the banality of 1980s suburbia more generally but the film does attempt to at least go further by arguing that this crushing mundane mundane existence and the need to belong does in fact drive its inhabitants crazy art reveals that the soda fountain jerk skip um, um, Uh, his his soda fountain shop was torn down shortly after his crimes, where he he ice picked his um, family to death, um, were discovered. And thus, with tearing down the soda fountain shop, uh, it sanitizes the ground and local memory by building a a local mall in its place. Building over the crime will surely obscure it from local memory with time, or so the logic seems to say. So in this story, whereby we see common literally doubled for Skip in Ray's nightmare. Skip killed his whole family with an ice pick and was discovered by the overwhelming odour of decay that emanated from his house. Burning the house to cover the discovery of his slain family decomposing in the summer heat, all memory of Skip and his house must be destroyed, cleansed and re- redesignated as a local colourful story that fades with generational memory, while the conformity and madness that seemingly cultivated this eruption of familial murder continues to endure. Dante's film uses the story of Skip to parallel this repetitive madness at the heart of the Reagan administration as Skip's own crimes occurred during the 1950s when both Ray and Art were children in the same town, with the soda fountain standing in for many of Reagan's own false ideals to cultivate a Norman Rockwell image of the 50s that was part of an imagined past to which the president strived to return. So, scriptwriter Dana Olson then commented on the inclusion of the story of Skip to emphasize the occasional eruption of violence that occurs in these banal spaces, those once in a decade apparent crimes that occur under the pressures of artificial curation of the suburban good life. More broadly then, the cinema of Spielberg, Dante, Decker, Hooper and Zemeckis call forth their individual suburban intrusions as a response to modernity, multiculturalism, the fantastic and the imaginative in a space that was reserved for the banal sameness and replicated housing, which stood in testament to the myth of belonging and consumerist practices. These encounters with the fantastic, of course, reveal the fault lines of the prevailing culture wars. This becomes much more violent than when we start to look at Candyman. So with Candyman, We have far from the utopian ideal then projected by the Reagan administration, films examining suburban spaces are, are articulate not only the size and scope of the home, but its spatial, spatial environments as proximate and architecturally separate as detached houses, for instance, from the nearest property boundary. Boundaries really matter here in the economic understanding of houses in 1980 cinema, as there is a profound distinction between high-end apartments and penthouses and coveted buildings in comparison with the project housing that demarcated spaces and places abandoned by city officials and relegated to cultural and geographic margins. These places are distinctly constructed away from the convenient spaces, shopping and food outlets, transportation links and and, um, and schools, for instance. So what we have here is something like high, that, for example, this is two examples of the kind of um, city urban housing that I'm looking at here. High-end apartments on film in the 1980s were spatially orientated in relation to open spaces, such as Central Park, for example, if you think of 55 Central Park, which is Dana Barrett's home in uh, Ghostbusters, also called Spook Central, or of course the Shandor Apartments. um, uh, This spectacular building features in the narrative as a giant antenna for the ceremonial summoning of Gozer by its mad architect and surgeon, Ivo Shandor. It's never a good sign when you're an architect and a surgeon, that can't be good. The actual Manhattan building was added to the National Register of Historic Places in in November 1982, bestowing federal protection to preserve the value of such spaces for their historic significance in the city. Only a building considered this historic summons the power of the ancient gods to return to 1980s New York on screen, a testament to the high-class living of those who can access such ex- uh, ex- exclusive spaces. As Benjamin Schwartz notes in The Atlantic on his review of Stephen Gaines' book, The Sky's the Limit, concerning New York property real estate, he says that, quote, there is no endeavor on earth more arduous than getting into one of these buildings, as real estate has become a voyeuristic preoccupation in America where, quote, the location of the apartment, half a block in either direction, the age or the construction of a particular building can peg your social and financial status, your religious and ethnic background, or your sexual preferences, quite precisely. So New York, then, as you can see, is no stranger to spectral invasions or indeed urban horrors it's the very suffocating nature of urban living that gave rise to Ira Levin's, Levin's chilling example of urban satanic ritual and the invasion of the home through secret entrances and doorways in his 1967 novel Rosemary's Baby. Similar high-rise and yuppie horrors disturbed the boundaries of apartment living according to Barry Keith Grant as they cinematically continue to offer quote an upscale variation of the film's old dark house narrative end quote. Urban horrors take center stage, of course, in Bernard Rose's 1992 film Candyman, based on the Clive Barker short story, The Forbidden, and Cabrini-Green, where the film is set, is on your right there, you can see it there. So, this quotation and Barker's inhabitants in the short story. Are driven mad within the Spectre Street's estate, perfect the estate's perfect geometry. He expands that at its opening, fine words have been spoken about its being a yardstick for which all future developments would be measured. But the planners, tears wept, words spoken, had left the estate to its own devices. The architects occupied restored Georgian houses at the other end of the city and probably never set foot there. It was people who had ruined, who had spoiled Spectre Street. So this example of uh, of a disintegrating British public housing estate is transposed into an equally unsettling and disorientating vertical labyrinth in Rose's cinematic interpretation of the tale, with the film's opening sky cam shots, then revolutionary for its smooth uh, image capture, reinforcing a similar geometry that binds and divides Chicago's urban hive. The film boldly states its horrors up front identifying the site of transgression, Cabrini-Green, as an eyesore where few beyond its residents dare to venture. So powerful was Cabrini-Green's reputation in US urban housing that it was deemed unfit for human habitation in 1981, but nonetheless continued its use to house the deprived urban population consigned to its disintegrating concrete walls. So during the Reagan administration, public housing funding was scandalously cut. Um, sorry, one second. Yeah, coupled with the increased prevalence of urban poverty overall as, quote, from 1978 to 1980, there was a 25% increase in the houses living below the poverty line, as well as an increase in just how poor the poor are. Despite this gap between low-income earners and low-cost units to accommodate them, HUD, which is the Housing um, the uh, housing and Urban Development Uh, portfolio, their levels for funding and subsidising housing assistance sharply declined under Reagan from 1980 to 1989. In 1980, the funding for this purpose stood at $26.6 billion and in 1989, $7.4 billion. So, furthermore, to highlight the horrors of Chicago's urban housing, In the wake of 11 murders at the site of Cabrini-Green in 1981, Mayor Jane Byrne moved into the complex to highlight its socioeconomic blight and to bring media attention to its ongoing violent legacy. The problem was there were reporting murders in Cabrini-Green, but they wouldn't necessarily say anything more than the person died in Cabrini-Green. So it became this sort of area that people projected horror onto as well. The site had proven to be laden, of course, with gothic inflection. It's got a psychogeographic space or spatial logic to it, of course, as prior to its urban development as this huge complex, uh, journalist Ben Austin notes that it was home to destitute immigrants before that. When Mayor Byrne's grandfather father, immigrated from, to Chicago from County Mayo in Ireland in 1888, the first place he lived in was Little Hell, the Irish ghetto that was the future site of Cabrini Green. Mayor Byrne's own temporary residence in Cabrini-Green, pictured at the bottom there, Um, whether it was a political stunt or genuine in terms of its uh, desire to highlight urban disintegration, it quote, spotlighted the project's unfitness for human life. And as uh, Byrne Byrne herself required uh, extraordinary police protection for the sojourn to Cabrini-Green, protection, of course, unavailable to its permanent residents. There, of course, in Cabrini Green and other Chicago public housing conditions were scandalous. Soviet uh, urban planners had visited similar public housing developments in Chicago and were shocked by the prison like austerity of the cinder block walls. Their prison style was nonetheless enabled some another form of terrifying accessibility. So in the film uh, Candyman, for those of you who have seen it, if you haven't do watch it, it's really good. Graduate student Helen Lyle, played by Virginia Madsen, discovers a, her upmarket Gold Coast apartment, which is about eight to 10 blocks from Cabrini Green, or the former site of it anyway, shares the same internal st- architectural structure as the Cabrini Green housing projects, including a disturbing secret passageway interlinking the, the apartments through the, the bathroom medicine cabinet. The metaphor works twofold in the film, as Helen both literally and figuratively discovers and breaks through the mirror space. First, the literal horrors of urban living are exposed when she discovers Cabrini Green also shares the same interlinked passageways in its internal structure, enabling a murderer to enter and exit an apartment at will. This element of the narrative draws on an actual murder of Ruth Mae McCoy in the Chicago Abbott housing project, situated not far from the infamous but less populated Cabrini Green projects, and this murder occurred in 1987. Similar to the blocked closet of Rose in Rosemary's Baby, the small passageway behind the bathroom cabinets became a vulnerable access point in the housing block, which led to other Abbott residents uh, to position their furniture in front of their bathroom doors before going to bed in an attempt to thwart home invasions. Secondly, the supernatural element in Rose's film links the vulnerable access points uh, in the architecture of the apartments with the permeable nature of the mirror in Summoning Candyman as per the urban legend Bloody Mary, his materialisation bound up in the mirror space as a gothic portal and his bloody appendage indebted to another urban legend, the the hook killer. Barker's repackaging of the tale, recalling the hook killer as a boy scout campfire tale of choice, also reinforces the need for urban instances of the fantastic and the supernatural. Set on the Spectre Street estate in his original short story, the residents in the Forbidden are imprisoned by a geometric perfection of the buildings. It's, of course, a sterile space, as Gary Hoppenstein notes, where, quote, people would provide the spark for accessing the fantastic, the miraculous. In Rose's film, the residents are imprisoned by their poverty and their societal neglect, crushed by institutional racism evident in Chicago's urban planning from the late 1960s, which condemned generations of African Americans in particular to life in these horrific buildings, their opportunities soured by neglect and the corrosive mix of drugs and shocking levels of violence. Such was the power of Cabrini Green. In the American imagination that it inspired a violent revenge novel, um, which is currently $900 on Amazon, um, The Horror of Cabrini-Green by Bruce C. Kahn, which, according to critics, revels in the senseless murders of its residents and target shooting at racist cops who dared to venture there. It's a classic exploitation kind of novel. In such spaces, when left to twist and rot by the, by the under the authorities, immortality is conferred often through a gruesome end, a death which lives on in whispers and retellings of the tale, and artistic graffiti and scrawled incantations that of course trace Candyman's own spectrality. As journalist Steve Bagheera co- concludes in his reports on the actual and socially ignored horrors of the Abbott Highrise Project, for example, which of course inspires the grim Gothic borders in Candyman, he says, urban legends may captivate us more than urban realities. Now Fred Botting declares that there is no one terrible space in the film, no one single locus of haunting containing anxiety. There are of course urban estates, apartment buildings, bathrooms especially, derelict spaces, multi-storey car parks, hospitals, they all become sites of fear and insecurity in the film. But the terrible places in a city need not be so specific or precise, all of these sites listed by Botting feature within the terribly blighted urban terrain, forgotten or forbidden places, transitional and depersonalized throughout Candyman, and transformed into wealthy and valuable real estate, steadily enabling cheap property grabs and eventual gentrification. In a powerful echo of Bernice Murphy's observation of the stolen lands that underpin American Gothic crimes, an anonymous Cabrini-Green resident commented to Harper's Magazine in 2012 on the demolition of the last remaining tower. She says, you don't get rid of the neighbourhood for the crime unless it's a land grab. These income generating capitalist spaces, such as car parks built on former project housing, actively absorb, displace, and often overwrite the spectral history of impoverished urban dwelling citizens, now absorbed or rendered painfully invisible within a new gentrified landscape, but uh, but with local fears and distrust of new neighbors displacing one type of social policing onto another. Nobody trusts their neighbors anymore. Such horrifying experiences thrive in the shared, apologies. Apologies. Um, So Barker's own story, is transposed remarkably well onto Chicago by way of the high rise homes misunderstood or misread by affluent people who fear to tread near those architecturally and socially isolated communities, except to pore over their abject homes, which um, house uh, versions of urban legends. Of course, this is exactly what Helen does for her own academic dissertation in the film and the novel, or novella. Barker's themes translate well, then, as a social document on the shared fears of the bad side of town or the wrong side of the tracks in the 1980s imagination, which, without the safety net of financial security, could also happen to us, too. And this is the terror, I think, in Candyman, is that, especially with the the lead character, she's always one step away of losing everything she cares about. So then, to conclude... The proximity of such spaces uh, of terror haunt the imagination of the property owner and neighbour in the burbs and the proximity of urban degeneration and proximate yuppie developments in Candyman. Both films reinforce the horror of social and spatial intrusion at the core, uh, as a core anxiety in the late 1980s and early 1990s imagination. The spectre of economics and community suspicion mm-hmm. haunts the economic horror film and brings to the fore palpable concerns best associated with modes of cultural haunting, the terror of loss of value and, of course, fiscal value, the loss of identity and the something excessive, quote, and unresolved in the past that requires intervention in the present. The definition of haunting these dwellings are both possessed and possessing artifacts of and precarious anxieties that underpin the false promises and paranoia of the reagan years and function as a ripe canvas in documenting the horrors of the long 1980s thank you and sleep tight
0: oh, thank you so much sorka for that fascinating presentation um i i'm going to uh, open up the for questions but um just a quick comment I, i'm wondering if you um made the connection between the bathroom air in Candyman and the bathroom air in house um
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and
0: if there's anything there <laughs> um, loads
2: there. there yeah No. Yeah. I, i'd love to talk about house actually but i i need a bit more <laughs> research before I'm, I'm there with house but yeah the 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 fact that you you cut through the mirror in house and the bathroom mirror in house and you end up in another dimension which again i think i think there's something really scary about the bathroom mirror staring into the bathroom mirror at night in a horror film it's got to open up some sort of terror doesn't it in some capacity so uh it's um i'm just starting my camera sorry so (laughs) i think there's something very scary about that the idea that it's right behind you and that you um you're staring at it but you're seeing through it there's got to be something something kind of psychosomatic going on there, so. Yeah, but,
0: there could yeah. be something about sort of masculine trauma as well in that film, because he he smashes through the mirror as opposed yes. to sort of finding and opening the mirror. Um, moving on, we have a, a comment and a question from Bernice Murphy. Uh, the comment is, I can't believe that you'd cite a hack like Bernice Murphy. Uh, <laughs> and the question is, um, given that you look at the verbs, have you ever considered mentioning another house-related horror story featuring Hanks? The Money Pit from 1986. Oh yeah, it's not generically horror, but as a financial horror story, it arguably works as well as Amityville. And Hanks, as all American everyman, plays a broadly similar role. Um, Yeah, thank
2: you for that. That's brilliant because, um, yes, I have I have seen it. It actually doesn't stand up very well to rewatching, but that's not the point. But yes, the um, the. the plummeting of the bathtub is something that i'll never really get over because that's just the worst possible thing you can imagine but it is property horror it's just overreaching financial overreaching and then or being sold the house of your dreams and then realizing you can't afford to actually keep it up but thank you for the suggestion because that is actually a really great connection as well
0: Um, then we have a question here from orland oh yeah we we have a question here from orland Donnelly. um, From pastiche murder house films of the 1990s like Scream, how did the murder haunted house murder slash haunted house motif become relevant and scary again with
2: films like Paranormal Activity and The Conjuring? Well, to quote a hack like Bernice Murphy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, I think Bernice, Bernice, um, I know Bernice has written some excellent stuff on this in relation to how the fiscal opportunities changed and how debt not necessarily is now tied to the property or your inability to pay is written large on the property but rather that your debt now follows you around and that's the spectral haunting you get in the early 21st century and I know where has is definitely written on that and on um, Blumhouse Horror so you're looking at paranormal activity but also you're looking at later stuff like um Uh, oh god what's the name of the film insidious those kinds of films it's uh it's attached to the family it's like the stigma the black mark that the bank have on you that's something that you find changes those uh, changes those narratives in the millennial era um whereas i think there's not a huge amount i mean certainly i might be misremembering but i don't remember a massive amount of haunted house material coming out at the end of the at the end of the 90s i do remember there being more like exorcist type or possession narratives but that was about possessing the body as a site, sort of, for demonic havoc, rather than it being about property per se. So, um, but I, I definitely think with the property of the 21st century, especially the post, uh, you know, 2007-2008 financial crash, it's all about destroying your permanent record with the bank. So, you're yeah. the one who's haunted. <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, the, coming back to sort of um, houses and and uh, bodies, a lot of my research isn't. In- I researched Shirley Jackson. So um, thinking about um, how so many critics approach her to, t- to talk about houses and, and haunted houses, but also to talk about houses as embodying certain things or as women being embodied in the houses. And there's this conflation of women and bodies and houses. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious if you have any comments about sort of gender in, in the films you're, you're looking at, especially Candyman
2: um and yeah i mean uh, i'm, I'm yeah. more thinking of gender in this period um f- in relation to to other films but yes you are right in terms of women either being confined or to the domestic space or encouraged to in, in, inhabit the domestic space as their workplace their environment um which i i know jackson again had that kind of torn relationship between her own writing and 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 or her writing, and then of course her domestic, uh, her domestic kind of care for her children and family and things. So I'm wondering, in the 80s, it's the domestic. The domestic is, is always aestheticized as well. Though. it's like the aesthetics alone tell you something's wrong. So the blame or the absence of women, I think, is sometimes actually a core marker that something is wrong i mean i didn't get a chance to really unpack it and i know i really looked at the burbs but um many many times but it doesn't have any females attached to the clopec family and i always think is that the sign of domestic disturbance not only the fact that the house is, is dilapidated and and in rack and ruin but that there's no feminine there is an argument there that there's no feminine touch, and therefore that's why it's also in rack and ruin that there's this is uh, an incomplete, economically unviable family that have moved into the suburban neighbourhood, and that that causes anxiety as well. There's no woman for the for the the housewives of the street to gossip with, for instance. Yeah. That haunting is, is still I mean, I suppose the thing to kind of underpin is I'm not saying that the, the, the house in the burbs is haunted. What it's doing, though, is it's haunting the imagination of everyone around them. It's disturbing them by the sheer virtue of the fact that they're not embarrassed by the fact that everything in the front lawn is dead or that they haven't painted everything. And that you know, it looks it looks absolutely dilapidated. The imagery alone is enough to disturb the suburban imagination.
0: Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, we have a, a question here from Danielle Cameron. Um, hi Sorka. Thank you so much for a great paper. I was wondering if you could speak a bit about how characters ages might relate to how people are haunted by slash affected by these settings. It appears that adults are more haunted than children. Often children are victims, uh, victims who are haunted or removed by the haunting, like in poltergeist. Um, can this focus on adulthood, um, be understood as reinforcing the relationship between capital, and these forms of
2: domestic haunting and horror. That's great. I need to actually think about that in a bit of detail because I think there's something to that. I mean, definitely the kids in the film uh, and the two films I've looked at. I mean, one of the kids is uh, kidnapped uh, in Candyman for a small baby's kidnapped in Candyman, and that becomes a real sight of anxiety because you're killing off the future, of course, um, and, uh, and and just to sort of to amplify the horror of the moment. In in the Burbs, we have two kids who kind of and a few teenagers who hang around, and they're not remotely perturbed by what's happening. They find it. To be awesome. I mean, yeah. I wish I had included the Corey Feldman ending, but you know, he says, "God, I love this street." At the end of the film, it yeah. breaks the fourth wall to say, "This is brilliant. It's great. It's having an ironic laugh." And the kids, the teenagers, are the ones who are just not perturbed by the likes of um, property anxiety because they're painting their houses and they, yeah, they're painting the houses for their parents as chores, that kind of thing. So there's no economic investment in it in that sense, and they don't get anxious by those kind of markers of esteem that hits that the neighborhood are completely obsessed with. In terms of kind of the the children, I'd have to think about that in more detail, but I really would like to follow up your question because I think I think there's something to that, but I just want to have a bit more processing time with that. I've been watching too much Joe Dante. So I need to think a bit more about it. <laughs> uh,
0: that's something to think uh, that's for for bad. next time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one more question here, uh, an important one from Eva Burke. Uh, in light of 2020, in the sheer amount of time we've all spent at home, do you think there will be a fresh wave of haunted house movies or movies that explore our relationship with the domestic space?
2: Thank you. I thought you were going to say, um <laughs> was this what you've been doing during lockdown, watching H. <laughs> our horror movies? The answer is yes, uh, absolutely. I do. I think. Well, it's interesting because I part of this comes from the fact that I. I remember when lockdown happened, the first thing I thought is everyone's going to go crazy when they when they emerge from this, the property market's going to go mental because people do not want to be looking at the same four walls, especially when they feel locked into it. So I do think there's going to be a wave of haunted house or some sort of similar kind of property anxiety coming into the fore I do reckon that's got that's on the way I think we're going to have a lot of disease narratives first of all I mean quite obviously and I do think it's a lot of it's going to be around contagion and touch but I just wonder if it's going to have some sort of property element to it as well um one of the films that comes to mind and unfortunately it's outside of the timeline of my work but a uh, monster house which is a really great kids uh, animation film it's a really good animation film where the house literally consumes the kids and it uh, it, it kind of tries like if you try and go and get your retrieve retrieve your ball the house will literally eat you so I think there's there might be something along those lines as well where we're looking at houses that consume people like literally can't let you leave so the house is prison or the house is sort of a um, vector for infection whether that's economic or otherwise there might be something to that for sure. I do think we're gonna have a lot more domestic horror though. And I mean, we've had real domestic horror, of course, under uh, under COVID as well with the amplification of like domestic violence, things like that. So I think there will be something along those lines. It will find its way to be expressed domestically though, because we've all been locked in for nine months. Yeah, <laughs> yes, <we have.
0: laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I'm afraid we're, we're running out of time. Um, but, uh, If you have any other um, questions, we can
2: forward them on. um, uh, Please do, thank you. I'm Um, sorry, I did take over time, but I was just with the clips. I couldn't resist the clips, especially anything to do with Satanists and a barbecue. So that was kind of good. (laughs) It was important, yes. (laughs) Um, So again, we would like
0: to thank you, uh, Sorka, for your amazing talk and your time. Uh, Just a reminder, our call for Papers for Hillary term is open. You can find more information on our blog, which should be in the chat or on our Twitter, which can be found at at SeminarsTCD2020. Once again, our next seminar will take place on Tuesday, the 2nd of February, 2021 at 4 p.m. Keep an eye on our links for the upcoming schedule of speakers. You can contact us through email at staffpostgrads2020 at gmail.com. We'd like to extend great thanks to the Long Room Hub for hosting these events and for technical support, also to the School of English at Trinity College Dublin, and to all of you for attending. Have a good night, happy holidays, and see you in the new year.
2: Thank you. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance language towards the history to of the Taimon Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating
0: Ireland through the communities created by cultural change changes. The hub, is about
2: the hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise
0: of feminist roots. Here's to the next ten years.